Welcome to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. In this podcast, there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life. Purpose, prosperity, philanthropy. Your host, Paul Lowe, the third sector mentor, is the founder of Hearts Global CIC, which along with many other of his charitable commitments, has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities. Author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Hearts books. Introducing your host, Paul Lowe. Well, welcome to this podcast interview where I've got a very special guest as ever, Mr. Richard Gerver. And uh, Richard, I'll introduce him in a moment, but uh, I just want to set the scene, if I may, by elaborating to, on the first podcast episodes. We've spoke around the need for purpose. And certainly moving on from that, the interview um, that we did made made more of a reference to prosperity. So I don't really want to get too bogged down on what I've termed my three pillars, but what I do want to, to scratch the surface below is the change process. Because whatever our philosophy or model for life is or our belief system, it's always going to be subject to change. So on that basis, it gives me immense pleasure to introduce Richard Gerver um, I'll let Richard tell you a little bit about himself and uh, I'm sure his humility will prevent him throwing accolades, but if he doesn't, I will. And um, so anyway, without further ado, over to you, Richard. Hi, Paul. Hello, everybody. It's, it's, real, uh, it's a real privilege to be with you. Um, yeah, so my background, um, I uh, was a primary school teacher and then primary school head teacher for the best part of uh, 20 years. Uh, it was my calling, it was my passion, it was everything I'd wanted to be, um, that passion, that, that desire to make a, a meaningful difference to young people's lives. Uh, and then 11 years ago, more by accident than design really, um, I took a, a very uh, big personal risk. I gave up what at the time was a hugely successful position as a head teacher in a, in a highly acclaimed school uh, with the salary and pension plan that went with it um, and gave all of that up to become freelance for the first time in my life, to work as a speaker, um, as an advisor um, and as an author. Uh, and so for the last 11 years, I've been working across a whole range of organisations and industries from education, which is always my home and my passion, across elite sport, the corporate environment, arts organisations, social and charitable organisations, um, working on the issues around uh, human development, particularly specialising on leadership, uh, and across two particular strands which have fascinated me. One is change and why so many people and so many organisations find change so difficult. Uh, and the other is why um, we tend to overcomplicate everything, why we believe that success and transformation has to be complicated. And, and that resulted in, in two of my books, which were uh, unsurprisingly called Change and Simple Thinking. And that brings me to where we are today, sat across a microphone from each other, Paul. Excellent. Thank you, Richard. Um, and as I alluded to, Richard would be quite uh, economical with self-praise there. 
Um, as, as, he's, uh, as he alluded to, Richard, he was a head teacher. That's where I met Richard about 15 years ago. I um, was involved in a charity that I'd formed at the time and we did uh, eco projects and, and um, sensory gardens for mainly primary schools and, that, and that's how our uh, paths crossed. So I think it's fair to say that Richard's journey during that time has gone, uh, has gone quite uh, to a, an elevated level. Richard, just, just give us a brief insight to uh, some of the people you've shared a stage with speaking. Oh gosh, um, I'm very lucky. Um, I've shared a stage with people like Steve Wozniak, who's the co-founder of Apple, uh, the Dalai Lama, um, uh, and most recently, uh, the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, which I have to say was of all my pinch yourself moments, probably the biggest pinch yourself moment. Uh, and that was, uh, that was an extreme, extraordinary uh, experience in Madrid um, in the summer of, of 2018, where we were discussing in front of two and a half thousand people what it would take to create, to discover, nurture and develop uh, a generation of future leaders who could change the world for the better. Uh, at the same event, as well as um, Barack Obama, there were um, a number of other fascinating people. One was Ndaba Mandela, who is Nelson Mandela's grandson and the grandson who Nelson raised as his own uh, from a young child uh, and a man that many feel will one day be president of South Africa. And also, probably the cleverest human being I've ever met, a man called Barry Barish, who won the 2017 Nobel Prize for Physics for his work into gravitational waves. And, and if you, like me, have no idea what that is, then, then you're not alone. But an extraordinary individual with some very interesting things to say about change, life, and, and the meaning of everything. So so in a potted history, I guess, Paul, there are, those are some of the... Um, the top trumps that I've been juggling with, who honestly, for a primary school teacher with a big mouth from Derby, are a constant amazement to me. <laughs> okay, which leads me very, very nicely into a comment from your uh, third book, Simple Thinking. Sometimes I'm feeling like a fraud on stage. Mm. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the things I think, and I, I was really referencing the whole point in the book, that as we grow older, we tend to believe that unless we have really um, brain-achingly complex things to say or views of the world or high levels of intellect and, and academic understanding, that somehow we're lesser citizens. And th the truth is that I will always um, consider myself to be a primary school teacher. I will never say, by the way, just a primary school teacher, because I think primary school teachers are, and I would say this, some of the most important people in the fabric of our society and most importantly in helping to transform the fabric of our society in the future. But as a primary school teacher, you know, you spend your days in the company of remarkable young people, all of whom are under 11. You don't tend to have to intellectualise what it is you do, your interactions, your human relationships, even your planning and thinking around the teaching and learning that you deliver. So when you find yourself in, in environments with Nobel Prize winners and former world leaders and spiritual guides, you know, with, with global reputations, you can't help but think 
is today, when you're on a stage, is today the day that someone says, really, is that all you've got to, to talk about? And I think what I was saying in the book, not so much tongue-in-cheek, but as a very deliberate, deliberate provocation, was what I've learned over the last, certainly the last 11 years, but probably over the last 30 or so, is that you don't have to have something complex to say in order for it to be significant. So I think that would be fair to summarise, Richard, that, um, yeah, again, a quote from your book, life is a very simple game. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, again, one of the things that I found during writing Simple Thinking, and it was, again, it was a privilege, you know, I got access to the thoughts of some extraordinary people, people who some might call immensely successful. Um, you know, everyone from the likes of uh, Alex Ferguson to Richard Branson to Jay-Z. And one of the things that fascinates me about all of their attributes that they share in common is that they all have what I would describe as childlike enthusiasm for the world. Um, and so, you know, these people have been quite the opposite in terms of their lines to success from being over complex, over academic, over intellectual. They have unquenchable levels of curiosity. I remember... Um, when I was talking to, to Branson and, and also to, to Jay-Z, both of them actually wanted to spend the time I'd been allocated with them asking me about me. And I had to stop them on a number of occasions saying, look, we can talk about me over a beer or anything you like another time. But, but I've been given time to ask you questions specifically for my book. So that un unquenchable curiosity that young children have um, that desire just to ask questions that are uncensored, to feel and think about the world without anyone filtering them out, thinking, filtering out those thoughts because somebody's going to tell them it's daft or immature or stupid or irresponsible. You know, and so that's really where I'm coming from here. And, and I've got to be honest, you know, the longer I travel through this life, the more I envy kids under five. Um, you know, we learn... And I don't know how you percentage it, but I think the sentiment is incredibly powerful. We learn somewhere between 70 and 75% of everything we learn in our lifetime before we're five. So if you think about the learning curve of our human existence, those five years are like a period of bounty. And then what follows is an increasing famine. And I'm convinced that part of that is because we pre-censure so many of our thoughts and our feelings and our actions based on what we comprehend other people view our responses to be, that we, we increasingly self-limit from the age of five up. And so for me, this quote about life being a simple game really reflects on, on that sentiment. You know, before we're five, it's an incredibly simple game. And arguably, as human beings, we are at our most successful. So maybe one of the great challenges that we all face is how can we strip back the way we think and behave to, to, to the times before we were five years old? And, and how can we be more conscious of controlling some of those in, in inverted commas, mature um, reflexes that tend to limit so much of our potential as we get older. So in that context, Richard, my mind was kind of just creatively thinking, perhaps we should have done this conversation sitting outside in wellies in a puddle and, and just, I don't know, asking for sticks of rock and, and ice creams. A 
absolutely. And why not? You know, you think <laughs> about the extraordinary things that, that young children accomplish. Um, you know, just by you, you stick them down in front of a cardboard box and they'll immerse themselves in a world created by that cardboard box for hours and hours and hours. And the older those young people become, the less likely they are to entertain themselves with a cardboard box, which, by the way, does also call into question one of the great challenges of the modern age, which is we need to be sure that we aren't limiting our own potential for curiosity and creativity and daft questions because we shut ourselves off using technology, which in many ways can, and by the way, I'm not technology bashing here, can become the chewing gum of the brain. And so one of those other great challenges for us is how do we make sure as we get older, we maintain those gorgeous, incredible, infectious levels of curiosity for the simple things in life. Absolutely. Failure isn't a bad thing. It's just failure. Yeah. You know, again, as I've already alluded to, as young children, young children don't see failure as bad. Young children just see failure as part of the adventure. And if you think the way we all react with young children, you know, the great, the, the, the most common example I give is when you sit with a young child cross-legged on the floor and coloured building blocks and the kid spends, you know, ages building the tallest tower they can and then the, tall, the tower topples. Well, they don't cry, storm off and, and get themselves into a real funk, do they? What they do is they laugh because you laugh and everybody rolls around laughing. And then what they do is they go again and they build a new tower. And all the time they're learning about balance and shape and weight distribution and all of those things. But the point is they're just reveling in failure. And, and the really interesting thing is this perception of failure as bad as we get older and the fact that failure becomes the enemy, if you like, of what we consider to be success. So as we get older, we increasingly tend to avoid situations where we're likely to fail, high-risk environments. And one of the things I've always said and always believed in is that you learn nothing new by getting something right, ever. You only ever learn something new from the point of a mistake, the realization you don't know something or you can't do something. And how, you, how do you expose yourself to that? Well, you have to embrace moments where you fail or make mistakes. And again, one of the great things that I think hinder and hamper our adult development is that absolute perception that failure is a bad thing. And more and more of us limit our lives, both socially and professionally, to the realms of things we know and we trust and we know we can do and the things we know we feel happy doing, even down to the habitual nature of most of us if we have the spare cash to go out for a meal, for example, right? 99% of us will order the same damn meal time after time after time. If you go to download music, you download music from a genre or an artist you know you like. You go to the cinema to see films in a genre you know you like. You go to a bookshop and you thumb them, but you only go to the, the genre you know you like, you know? And one of those things that really interests me is that those habitual qualities stifle our development, yet in the second breath we go, I don't understand it. Why aren't I creative? Why aren't I curious? And the trick is because we censor our behaviours based around that fear of making a mistake, failure, or thinking something isn't going to work for us. Yet as young children, 
we don't see that concept of failure as a bad thing. And I think over time, we're constrained by our advisors and our environment. And I, I liken it to putting a plaster on a problem um, as a young child. And by the time the child um, has matured into an adult, that child is, is just full of plasters and doesn't really know anymore why those plasters are there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's a really powerful and, and important observation because I think one of the great duties of care we have um, it, and it's a real paradox because as adults we tend to want to protect young people we want to nurture you know if you're a responsible adult in a caring environment which I know not all of us are lucky enough to, to be in that position but but our reflex is to protect to nurture to support um, and many parents and families and indeed educators over nurture and over protect young people. But the other thing we, we've done since time immemorial is cast the idea that our job in developing and nurturing young people for their future is to promote the sense to them that they have to seek out certainty, that certainty equals stability and stability equals happiness. So. We are preoccupied from a very young age with doing what we're told and doing it to the best of our ability. And I think this is a really interesting um, issue now in the social and global context in which we find ourselves, because for many generations, that was probably the most effective way of ensuring the vast majority of people had let's not call it successful, but let's call it competent lives, you know, lives where they got through um, and did okay for themselves because that whole model of work hard, do what you're told, learn that at school, it'll set you in good stead, you'll get to pass exams, which will get you qualifications, which might get you entry into higher education, which is going to give you greater certainty to find a really good job. And even if you don't go into higher education, and you dipped out of education, you know, for some of our listeners, that could have been at 13, 14 years of age. For many, it's 16, 17 years of age. And some at 18 who didn't go into higher education. See if you can find an apprenticeship or a trade or a job, you know, in, in a factory or a service where family have worked, which again will guarantee you at least a job for life, which will guarantee you in turn regular income, which buys you keys to a kingdom that means you can have a home rented or owned. You can uh, put food on the table. You might be able to afford a holiday or a, a motor vehicle or, or all of that, a pet or, or those sorts of things. And eventually that should see you through to a stable retirement, right? So we were trained, nurtured, educated and raised to seek out certainty. What's happened, I think, in the last 20 or 30 years and interestingly accelerated uh, in the financial crash that, that occurred in 2008 is that the world doesn't turn that way anymore, right? Certainty is no longer something that is the privilege of the majority. And we're actually living in an environment which is far less certain. And as a result, one of the things that I'm seeing in society, not just is an alarming rise in the rate of mental health problems, uh, you know, attempted suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, all of the things that can go with that, the, the rise in self-medication and depression, all of those things I think are, are now the greatest epidemic of our age. Um, but also what we're seeing is a phenomenal rise in anger 
people are incredibly angry, right? And that's showing itself across the socio-political spectrum. And I don't want to get political today, but you know, extraordinary events like um, the, the entirely democratic decision that the British people took to, to enact Brexit, the fact that in the US, despite all of the pundits saying it could never happen, a president of, of the nature of Donald Trump was elected. There is the rise of the extreme right wing across many countries in Europe and in fact across um, Latin America. There is a huge explosion in suicide rates and mental health problems across Asia and Southeast Asia. So what we're seeing, I think, is a reaction and a tipping point where generations of people who were prepared loosely for a world of certainty, who could then enter that world of certainty, are no longer finding that certainty, right? So what we're seeing is a massive grating of the emotional and, and social plates where people did what they were told and didn't get what they were promised. And as a result, there is the explosions I've, I've talked about. And I think one of the really, really important issues we have to come to terms with and understand is why we're all on a personal level experiencing so much of those frictions in our lives and maybe start to ask those fundamental questions about how can I really recalibrate my own mindset, not only so that I can survive but thrive in the future, but my family and friends can do the same thing. Absolutely, because I think a lot of people have spent a lot of time chasing externals, what I call externals. The world is out there. I will control it. Mm. And as you quite rightly allude to, Richard, in my humble opinion, those changes, they're stark and they're exponential now. And people are starting to realise the need to look back inwardly because I can't change what's going off out there, but I can change the way I deal with it. And I think that's, you know, there is certainly from the work I do, mm. there's a lot of evidence to that because I think it's almost fueled by desperation. You yeah, know? And, and I agree. And I also think, I go back to what I said before, you know, we are trained to trust other people to control our lives for us. Because basically what we're told is, is if we do the right thing, then there will be people who will look after us, whether that's the state, whether it's a corporation, whether it's friends, family, um, whether it's a social organisation. We're always told to trust that other people will control our lives for us. And I think what's happening increasingly is, is a growing understanding and enlightenment, if you like, which is actually suggesting exactly what you're saying, which is, although a lot of people find it very frightening, and partly because they don't have the tools and experience to comprehend how to do it, the truth is, we all have to look far more inside ourselves to find our own answers and to develop a greater sense of self-leadership and self-management that will ultimately make us feel far more satisfied and happy because it will move more and more of us away from the reflex right now, which is that of victim. Because so, much, so many of us feel that we are reactive to the circumstances in the world around us. And if we start to trust ourselves more, which really in essence is what the book Simple Thinking is all about, we can start to feel that we have greater control over our lives and therefore feel more proactive. And of course, one of the great lessons of life is 
if you are reacting to anything, professional or personal, that never feels cool. But if you feel you're in control and you're being proactive, that actually can be really exciting. And I think that's a really interesting thing that, that I was exploring in the second book, which was change, which was the reason why so many people are so fearful of change isn't because of change itself. It's because their experience of change is always reactive. Whereas if you choose to change something in your life, if you're in control of a change around a variable or factor in your life, it's a very different perception. And although there might be a frisson of fear based on the unknown, it's actually largely a really positive experience because you're controlling that process. And I think that's also one of the key challenges that we face. How do we move from an environment where so much of our lives seem to be reacting to events to, to a place where we actually feel we're controlling and therefore being proactive to with the events in our lives. And I think we could sum this this particular uh, phase of conversation up uh, what what Branson would call reinvention. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the other thing. You know, it goes back to childhood. One of the most powerful things about curiosity is that there is a there is a sense of dissatisfaction with what I already know and how I already exist, but not in a negative way. Young children are dissatisfied because they're always hungry to know more, be more, and experience more. And I think that's the point I keep making, which is maybe we should just untap the five-year-old in all of us. Absolutely, because it's there, isn't it? Oh, it, it never goes away. We just suppress it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Two words, Richard, curiosity, quotient. Give us an insight, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the really interesting things that I think that I started to dabble with when I was doing research for the books was obviously most people have heard of IQ, right? Most people have heard of intelligence quotient. Um, and we're, we're often so heavily measured in terms of our intelligence based on that. We're pigeonholed and categorized. It goes back to what I was saying before. Society values um, academia as the currency of clever. Intellect is the currency of clever. Um, you know, it's why scientists, rightly to an extent, are held up as the geniuses they are, because most of them, largely their research and work, hopefully makes the world better for, for the rest of us. Um, but the, the, the real tragedy and shame is we don't measure curiosity in the same way. Yet when you think about it, it is the marriage of intellect and curiosity that actually defines human beings and our drive to be better and create better societies. Um, I, I go back to my meeting with Steve Wozniak. One of the things that was really interesting about meeting Steve was he said, you know, Richard, Apple would never have happened if it had just been me because I tinkered with transistors. I used to be fascinated how things worked. I'd deconstruct them and I'd reconstruct them. But actually it was my meeting and marriage, if you like, with Steve Jobs, who was a creative genius. He was restlessly curious, right? He was childlike. Um, he was always trying to explore new things. He said and it was only when the two of us came together that Apple would ever have been possible. You know, he said the thing that defined Apple in many ways in the early days was the unique um, way Apple computers looked on screen. And that largely came from Steve Jobs's um, fascination with calligraphy and writing as an art form. 
He said, so actually, it was my intellect and my academic and technical knowledge married with his curiosity and his incredible levels of, of curios, curious, curiosity intelligence, if you want to frame it that way, his curiosity quotient that allowed us to develop and, and create the, the company we did, which in my opinion, ultimately has been a game changer in the way all of us lead our lives. And I think there are so many stories like that. You know, when you think about uh, the meeting I told you about earlier with Barry Barish, who was the Nobel Prize winning physicist from 2017, um, and his work into gravitational waves. One of the really interesting things about Barry was I asked him about his recruitment process and he said, well, you, you know, really interesting to, to get anywhere near Nobel Prize winning physics discovery. You have to have a massive team around you. And he said, you know, we recruited over 143 different people from all over the world. He said, but what I wasn't interested in was their science qualifications because I assumed they all were incredibly qualified physicists. But what I wanted to know was when we were selecting those people, and there were thousands who applied, when we selected the 143, what I wanted were people that could ask interesting and stupid questions. So yet again, what that suggests to me is it's not enough to have IQ. You've got to have CQ. You've got to have the ability to demonstrate in your own behavior on a daily basis that you are deeply curious. Okay, and that fascinates me, Richard, in the context of, and I've got three words for you here, so I'd like to put the, uh, the ball back in your court and say, right, okay, I understand that and I actually agree with it, but three words for you, flat pack furniture. <laughs> Do you know, sometimes in life, curiosity isn't necessary. Um, look, the thing is, um, I um, and you're talking to absolutely the right person because when I first moved in with my wife, which was 28 years ago now, um, we went out and bought some flat back furniture from um, whatever the precursor to B&Q was. Um, and I ended up um, stabbing the back of it at four o'clock in the morning in a fit of pique because I couldn't make slot A match slot Z and put the holding pin across it, right? So there are some things that I didn't want to, I don't want to be curious about because to me, they are functional, right? And furniture is one of those things. Give me something that's either pre-built or that I can put together really easily. And that's great because that allows me then the time and space to be curious about the things I am fascinated about. And one of the things I would say is you can't fake, you can't lie to yourself and you can't fake your curiosity. And what I mean by that is you can't be interested in stuff you're just not interested in. Sometimes you have to be disciplined enough to push yourself through those processes. And, and we learn that from being children. You know, I was never particularly gripped by um, mathematics at school, but I knew I had to push myself through it. However, I was hugely gripped by history at school. I loved politics. I loved language and literature. Um, I loved the arts. And I would always find that's where the depth of my joy came from because those were the areas which I was I allowed myself to be curious in. So I think one of the other things in a way is time management. You know, the answer here is you don't have to be curious around everything. 
but you have to be curious, you have to allow yourself to be curious about the things that interest you. You know, I know many people for whom making stuff with their hands is an absolute joy. And, and I revel in watching master crafts people, whether they're building furniture, whether they're using pottery, whether they're creating something useful. Uh, my father-in-law was like that when he was alive, bless him. My father-in-law loved gardening, he loved DIY, he loved building stuff. My stepfather was a precision engineer who used to love nothing better than to going into, into his garage and building from his own designs modern locos and modern aer model aeroplanes. It was never something that interested me, although I was always able to be in awe of his, his ability to do those things. And by the way, my stepfather was one of those kids who left school at 13 because he was told he was stupid. And it was only many years later that he found out he actually had dyslexia. But he was in many ways a genius, but that genius was driven by his own curiosity and never through his edu formal educational experience. So I think, you know, it's perfectly okay to park your brain <laughs> and, and allow the world to flow over you if it's something you don't have a real interest or capacity for. And I think that's a sign of maturity to understand where those limitations lie and to be comfortable that you have limitations. But it also, by doing that, it's a bit yin and yang, you know, it allows you then the headspace and confidence to find the things you are curious about. And I think the trick in modern life is to make sure you find the space and time to be curious. Because one of the things I hear so often from people is, I love all that, Richard, but I just don't have the time. And that comes back to this issue around the courage of self-management and self-leadership. You know, I don't think I have the gift of more time than any other human being. I work as hard as anybody else does. I have a family. I have all of those personal commitments. But it's a case of if you want it, you've got to find it and you've got to value it. And I think those are the things, finding the space and time, trusting that sometimes you have to use labor-saving devices to help find that time and space, and then to pursue that curiosity. So yeah, look, flat pack, for, flat pack furniture for me is a gift from heaven as long as it bloody works and I can read the instructions. Yeah, I think that's what Rob Moore would call life leverage. <laughs> People that enjoy doing it, do it, and I'll pay them accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my take upon it is if I'm a goalkeeper, don't ask me to be your 20 goal a season player. Yeah. Because it's, it's not who I am. No, exactly right. Absolutely right. And I think that, you know, the, the football analogy is, is such a powerful one. I mean, I was never a, a footballer of any note, but I so desperately as a child wanted to be a striker because that's where the glory was. Um, and I resisted for so many years because actually I was quite a decent fullback because I was relatively agile, quite stocky, quite big, quite intimidating and could get, I had a motor, I could get up and down the line. I didn't want to play fullback though because I wanted to be a striker and it was only when I entered my teenage years that actually I was comfortable enough to say, but that's actually what I'm good at. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Um, and I think we all go through that life lesson. Absolutely. Beliefs, Richard. Tell me about beliefs, and, and you know, at its heart, success is selfish. Mm. I think it's a very interesting thing. Look, I mean, it, I think it's a very personal thing, and I think it's okay for it for it to be very personal. I never condemn anybody for either their beliefs or their passions or the things that make them happy, as long 
as they don't interfere with other people or make other people feel uncomfortable or unhappy. So never at the expense of other people. For me, I learned many, many years ago that my personal belief was centered around one word, my entire compass um, and, and feelings of what success were to me could be, could be centered around one word. Um, and it goes back to the death of my maternal grandfather, who was a man that I grew up with, really, for one reason and another, uh, in, in some of my youngest and most um, formative years, I grew up in a home with my grandmother and my grandfather and my mother and my brother. So for many years in my young formative life, he was a, a powerful role model for me. And when he died, which was when I was a young teenager, um, you know, you can imagine for all of us, loss and bereavement of close family is, is always a difficult thing. And, and particularly when it's one of the first losses and bereavements you experience as, as a young person. I remember being at his, at his graveside and uh, I come from a, the Jewish faith traditionally. And in the Jewish faith, funerals are incredibly stark. And, and really deeply unpleasant experiences, actually. And one of the traditions within the, the Jewish faith is that the male members of the family have to fill the grave after the burial ceremony has taken place. It's ceremonial. You only, you only shovel four or five um, hods into, into the ground. But I did my bit, you know. This was my grandfather, and it was what was expected of me. And in a, in a strange kind of way, you feel it, it's it's a way of, of serving um, respect to his memory. And so I did it. But obviously, I stood there extremely upset. I remember it being, you know, the starkness of the day, the whole thing. It was. It just overcame me. And and as I was stood there. This old guy came up and put his arm around me and he said, you know, I used to work with your grandfather many, many years ago. And I want to tell you, young man, that he had more integrity than any human being I'd ever met. And it was a profound moment for me because I wasn't entirely sure, I think, at that time, the depth of what integrity really means. But I did know in that moment it was quite cathartic. It, it was almost an epiphany. You know, I thought to myself in that moment, my God, if somebody could say that about me at my graveside, then I have reached my fulfillment. I have done everything in my life that I could aspire to do. And, and for me, it's that belief system that has driven all of my adult life and will continue to do so. Um, it's also my Achilles heel, because if anybody ever accuses me of lacking integrity, that hurts more than virtually anything else. You know, it's like somebody driving a dagger into your heart. And I'm not saying that that should be the Integrity should be the driver of every human being, that every human being will find what is their driver. Now, you know, for some, some might consider it be superficial. It might be about the, you know, the, the accruing of wealth and material things. For some, it might be a deep sense of, of religious calling. For some, it might be just the, the environment of raising a family and, and perpetuating um, a legacy. It could be 101 different things. But what I think is really important is people are honest with themselves. It's a phrase I've used already in this podcast. You can't lie to yourself. And I worry sometimes that people don't follow their own beliefs. They either follow beliefs that they think are expected of them, or sometimes they follow a belief system 
which they think uh, is the right one to follow because other people would look at them and say that's the right thing to be or the right thing to want or the right thing to desire. And one of the things that I reflect on as, as I get older, as we all do, is the day I became comfortable in my own skin was the day I realized that my belief was centered around the the desire to constantly show integrity. Um, and it's how I reflect everything I do, all of the actions, all of the behaviors, all of the experiences I have. And I truly believe that if you find a passion that is something you truly feel attuned to, um, and you have the courage to stick to that, no matter what the external pressures, above everything, um, when that day comes for you, you should be able to reflect back on your life and say, I lived a life of value. And, and that to me is, is my personal belief, that we should all have the courage to live a life of value. Thank you for that share, Richard. When, if we can go back to the very first podcast, which was uh, called Mastering the Game of Life, as simple as ABC, question mark. Now, as simple as ABC, just as a, as a reminder, the A is for awareness because we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. The B is what we've been talking about, the beliefs. And if things are not working for us, then maybe we need to change our beliefs because nature and the infinite universe will do what it will do. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, the C, is, is what we spent quite a bit of time talking about as well as creativity. Because, you know, to... To use a well a well worn cliche, if we always do what we've always done, we'll always get what we always got, mm -hmm. and then we'll usually end up moaning that oh, you know, I keep getting these high gas bills and these are, and I can't pay these gas bills, and, and it's a bit like a dog chasing its tail. Mm -hmm. Or why don't you put some more clothing on, or metaphorically turn the gas off, or you know, change, do something different. Mm -hmm. But we don't do it because we're stuck in this need for certainty. Yeah. And this this significance isn't there in actually moaning and and being becoming trapped in this despondent way of being, mm -hmm. rather than having that courage to step out of that and say, okay, we do need to change this. We do need to change this. Okay, so if I can conclude now, then Richard, and, uh, I always like this kind of exercise. Say to people, metaphorically, you are looking at your last few breaths what would you say to the outside world about your life? And I know you've already touched upon mm -hmm. it, but if you could, you know, if you can leave some real, some more golden nuggets sure. for the listeners to say this, in my belief, this is what it's all about. Well, you know, I, I think the best way I can define that is by saying, um, saying a little bit about, you know, when I became, when I became a head teacher at Grange, which, you know, you know, well, um, it was a community that was slightly directionless. It was incredibly reactive. It was an environment that felt battered and despondent. And I wanted to encapsulate what our environment should be so that we as a community, um, children, parents, grandparents, teachers, staff, non-teaching staff, governors, could hold ourselves to account for. And I suggested to them three words that I think I've always in my adult life lived my life by. So putting the integrity aside, 
three words that I think are really important to the secret of living a fulfilling life. Um, and I suppose they would be those three words that, it, that as I'm taking my last few breaths, the people were saying of me, he lived his life that way. And he lived by those three words. And they're these. The first is, um, and, and none of them are clever, by the way, it goes back to simple thinking. The first is living. He lived his life. Um, he lived his life. Uh, he, he spent his life trying to achieve the things that interested him, that made his heart beat faster. Um, he, he lived every single day to the best he possibly could. Um, he didn't keep waiting for tomorrow to come because for some people tomorrow never comes, right? That he actually lived every day. He woke up every day and lived his each 24 hours to the max. The second is learning. Um, I, I hope that in my last few breaths, people will say, and I'll be able to reflect for myself, that again, I didn't, I was never satisfied with what I knew or what I'd experienced. That, and it comes back to curiosity, that I was unquenchably curious, that I would always want to know and learn more. But when those moments of passion arose, I wouldn't wait for somebody else to bestow that gift of learning on me, that I would actively seek out what I didn't know and what I wanted to find out. I would actively seek out the experiences I wanted to have but hadn't had. Um, so that, that absolute desire unquenchably to keep learning and to be curious. And the third um, L, the third word is laughter. Um, that my final breath would be a smile at, at worst and a belly laugh at best because one of the things I think I learned very early on in my life is it is far too easy to constantly drag yourself down to your own lowest common denominator and by doing so miss the joy and wonder of the world passing you by. And my absolute passion and belief is that the very way that living beings are created is miraculous. Whether you're religious or not, they are tr it's a truly miraculous thing, that spark of life. And those of us, whatever creature we might be, but particularly as human beings with the gift of, of deep consciousness, to have been lucky enough to be the one in a billion that was an egg that connected with a sperm that became nurtured powerfully enough to become a human being and grow into adolescence and then adulthood. We need to remember the extraordinary gift we've been given and that actually the world is a remarkable place and it's filled with funny stuff. And we should always be able to find, if we can, the light side to, to something in our existence. And remember that laughter will always furnish you as a rich human being, irrespective of your, your uh, physical and material wealth. And so for me, those are the three things, right? I want people to say of me, he lived his life, he never stopped learning, and his laughter was infectious. Very similar to my own three L's, and I know we've spoke about this before, and mine was learning, loving, particularly self-love, which is yeah. something I personally struggled with for decades, and legacy. Mm -hmm. To quote Stephen Covey's ninth habit, leave the world a better place than it was when you got here. Absolutely. That's, Absolutely. That's, that's your entrance for having been part of it. Yeah. 
Richard, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. Really, it's been a joy to speak with you. Thank you for having me on. And to our listeners, I hope you've got some value from that uh, fascinating conversation, Pearls of Wisdom from, from Richard Gerver. And so all that remains now is until next time for me to wish you self, safe happiness and uh, good luck in all you do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowhearts.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember, mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.